Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Richard Beck. He is professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University. His newest book is Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. Cash sang about and for people on the margins. He famously played concerts in prisons where he sang both murder and ballads and gospel tunes in the same set. It's this juxtaposition between light and dark, writes Richard Beck, that makes Cash one of the most authentic theologians in memory. In reflecting on Cash's lyrics and the passion with which he sang them, Beck argues we gain a deeper understanding of the enduring faith of the man in black. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Richard Beck. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Excited to be with you. You have written a new book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, the Gospel, According to Johnny Cash. Now, it's interesting because this book for you comes not just out of a pure musical interest. You weren't like a huge Johnny Cash fan. You knew who he was, but it was out of your own work with people in prison, right? It seems that you've engaged Cash in sort of a deeper way later in adult life. Yeah, I teach a Bible study on Monday nights out of that maximum security prison north of my hometown in Abilene and had been doing that for a couple of years and didn't count myself a huge Johnny Cash fan, but came across at a discount album bin at a store, the at Folsom Prison, the live at Folsom Prison concert, and bought it. Just thought it would be a good thing to listen to back and forth to the prison on Monday nights. And just the, the album in juxtaposition with what I was experiencing out of the prison, just maybe to listen to this, the album almost obsessively. And then I upgraded to uh, at San Quentin. And that just began like a, a couple year long deep dive into the music and life of Johnny Cash. And yeah, it was fueled out of my own experiences in a prison and finding more about his advocacy for prisons. Uh, he actually even testified in front of the Senate once about prison reform. And that was my kind of entry into his music. And um, yeah, ultimately led to this book. Yeah, those prison recordings are un unlike any live recording well like any uh, recording anyway but like uh, they're they're unlike any live recording i've ever heard right i mean it's fair to say right like i i would guess most people would say that oh most definitely i mean i think still today when you listen to them it gives chills uh up and down your spine just the, just the enthusiasm and even just how uh kind of dangerous the room can could sound at times especially there's a moment on at san quentin that is one of my favorite all-time johnny cash moments where he, he sang a song called San Quentin, which is just this stinging rebuke of the San Quentin prison. And the response was so sustained and thunderous that they couldn't hardly calm the, car, the crowd down. And they demanded that he sing the song again. So he does. He sings it twice in a row. So if you look at the album, it's, it's double listing. And it was just the insistence of the room. And if you listen to it after the second playing, it is just a prolonged thunderous applause. And you hear the men kind of stomping and banging on the tables. And it was potentially a really dangerous moment. Cash said at the time that he felt if he had just said, let's go, a full-scale prison riot would have broken out at that moment. So I don't know if there's any other live concert album that has an audience on the brink of a full-scale riot inside uh a maximum security facility. Yeah, there's just so there there's just so, something kind of dangerous and energetic about those albums that I don't think has been captured else elsewhere in the music history. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember that scene in the in the movie Walk the Line where Joaquin Phoenix plays Johnny Cash and he walks in to Columbia Records, right? And and he's just like he looks like sort of like a ghost almost as he's gone through this sort of rough addiction phase and and they say you know, the executive says, Johnny, your fans are church folks, Christians. They don't want to hear you, you know, with the same old pickers going in singing uh, songs to cheer up a bunch of murders and rapists. And he says, well, then they're not Christians then. <laughs> but you, you point out something that's so beautiful. You talk about 
So much of Johnny Cash's understanding of faith was solidarity. I mean, he was a guy who knew a lot of pain. And so his instinct, I mean, some people's instinct who have been in deep pain is to avoid it wherever they find it. But his almost was to lean into it and identify with, with sufferers. And that really seemed to be redemptive, not just for them, but for him. Yeah, I think he was unique among artists where he would try to find stories of other people to give voice to his own pain. Uh, he didn't sing a lot in an autobiographical vein, but he would spend a lot of time looking for the stories of people. Like if you think of a like the song Folsom Prison Blues, so it's sung by the perspective of an inmate, but he wrote it during a time when he was in the Air Force overseas. And the reason why he identified with that incarcerated singer is because of the own alienation and loneliness that he was experiencing in his own life. So – but what would happen then is as, as he found his voice in the stories of these other people, the the inmates, when they heard that song, obviously felt themselves seen and recognized in it. So they started writing to him, and that's kind of what led him into those prison contexts because he was able to give voice to his own pain. Yeah, and I think there's something deeply beautiful about that, the way his pain connected with the stories of others. They felt seen in his music. And there's a sort of universality uh, of the human condition that his art was able to tap into. Yeah, it's interesting. He's not unlike Bruce Springsteen in some ways in that way. Springsteen recently said in his memoir that like he took his dad's work uniform and, and donned it and sang. And he sings these songs. And Springsteen was obviously going through his own form of alienation. But he sang about that his own alienation and, and wanderings and struggles through a different experience and 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 it was just true like americana i mean it was it's amazing it's a real it's a real art to be able to to sing uh, in a way that you can give voice to another person's pain i mean it's a remarkable empathy i guess it takes yeah and cash recognized that in springsteen when when springsteen started first recording especially in nebraska uh, and then the ghost of tom joad like two albums that i would say kind of really uh, are are kind of the next generation of Johnny Cash music where he really sang about working class people and immigrants and and murderers uh, the way Cash would would sing about them. Um, in fact, Cash, when he was trying to revitalize his career in the 80s, actually uh, titled one of his own albums after a Springsteen cover called Johnny 99. And on that album, I think he also covered uh, Springsteen's Highway Patrolman. So yeah, there are a lot of similarities between Springsteen music Springsteen's music and Cash's music in the way they would kind of sing about people in the underclass and lower classes of America and kind of, uh, you know, working class, blue collar kinds of people. Yeah. One of the things also I think Cash could do that was remarkable when he would when he would cover songs like his box sets and stuff like he can transform. Like you talk about his cover of Nine Inch Nails, Hurt, which is I mean, it's the same song. And yet, is it the same song anymore? And the same thing, I think, with Desperado because with the Eagles, it, it, I mean, it's the same lyrics, it's the same tune, and yet it has this gracious paternal feel with Johnny Cash that it doesn't have with the Eagles, you know? And, and you get the this tenderness. It's somebody, like, seeing somebody that, like... You, you tell this powerful story of when Johnny Cash is caught by the sheriff, and he the sheriff gives him his drugs back, right? Uh, and he, he says, my wife and I are huge fans. And he's like, why are you giving me the drugs back? They're illegal. He says, well, you know, yes, yeah, so is what you're trying to do yourself, killing yourself. But, you know, I can't stop. And, and there, you know, as you hear him, like, you know, this in, in, in the sheriff's encounter, he sees his own wayward wanderings and self And then, you know, you, you listen to him cover Desperado. You can almost hear him singing to a different version of himself. Oh, yeah. And I think that was part of the genius of... Uh, Rick Rubin, because we're talking when he covered Trent Reznor's Hurt, he's in the last years of his life. He's an older gentleman. Uh, he's recording the last music of his life. And yeah, and there's something about Reznor's lyrics in Hurt, which he wrote in the middle of his own heroin addiction, sung by, from the perspective of an aged person looking back on their entire life. And, and you're right. There's something about the, the quality of his voice. It's a little bit more broken. It's not that strong voice that we remember from the sun years. There's some vulnerability in it. And so when he talks about hurt, 
the hurt he's done to others and the hurt of his own life. A lot of it's like you've said in his during his season of addiction, self-inflicted wounds. There's a pathos to that. There's a authenticity to it that is really remarkable and unfor- unforgettable. So hurt is now considered one of the like, greatest covers in rock history uh, be- because of that, that juxtaposition of those painful lyrics uh, sung by kind of an aged person with a lot of regrets, a lot of perspective. And a lot of us, I think when we look at our lives, identify with that. We look back on regrets, uh, bridges that haven't been built, things that haven't been mended, uh, forgivenesses that have not been extended or, or received yet. And so when you hear that song, there is yeah just an overwhelming sense of uh, pain that and sadness that kind of catches people, even young people. That's the song. When I talk to my college students, when they talk about Johnny Cash, that's the first song they go to. They go to the video of Hurt. Um, that's that's the Johnny Cash they know. You talk about you know the first album he did. You know they didn't want gospel music they kind of dramatized this in the film walk the line like and you're that's all you got the same old song about jesus gonna save you <laughs> yeah. what do you really believe <laughs> you say i don't believe in god mr yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but then you talk about he i walked the line was nurse but he he slid in a gospel song and it sounds like the uh, a romance song and it is the way it's dramatized for instance in that film is it's it's sort of this Heart cry to June, you know, uh, in, in his own broken marriage with Vivian, and and trying to sort of have a different approach to love with June and all that, the way. But really, it's a double entendre, right? It's also it, it, it also talks about you know he and his relationship with God, and yet you, you Merrill Haggard, you quote it's, the irony of this is Johnny Cash was anything but a line walker. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, he wanted to he wanted to record gospel music because of his younger brother Jack. And so this is vividly portrayed in the movie how Jack, who's around 15 years old, was tragically killed by a saw. A saw cut into his gut while he was cutting fence posts in the school shop. Lingered for a few days and died tragically. And Johnny I think was around 13 years old. Jack was his best friend. Jack was going to go on to be a preacher. And so a young Johnny Cash was trying to think about how he could kind of carry on the spiritual legacy of his brother. And so he promises Jack as a child basically to that he'll record gospel music his whole life. He'll spread Jack's message through music. But when he went to Sun, they were in the middle of trying to record music for the rockabilly audience. So they're, Sun's producing Elvis at this time and they want Johnny Cash to sing those kinds of songs of teenage heartbreak. And he records a lot of that music in the early days. But uh, his biggest hit, obviously, is I Walk the Line, which he wrote for Vivian, his first wife, because she was worried about his marital faithfulness on the road because she's watching him on the stage with Elvis, and she's seeing how the girls are responding to her husband. So he sings this ode of fidelity to Vivian, I Walk the Line. Um, but then late in his life, in a in a, a biography with Robert Hilburn, he confesses that he felt that I Walk the Line was his very first gospel hit because he's also in the song – pledging faithfulness to God. But the irony, as you point out, is he breaks all of those promises. He, he divorces Vivian. Uh, he goes into a deep, profound addiction that lasted over a decade, and he experienced relapse multiple times even after that. Uh, so, yeah, in the book I talk about, but if the story of Johnny Cash, if the gospel according to Johnny Cash is anything, isn't about our ability to keep our promises because we're all broken, fallible people. But it's about kind of God's fidelity to us, God walking the line for us. And Cash kind of gave witness to that throughout his life, how God kind of largely through June, uh, her love for him pulled him out of that very dark place and kind of helped him get his life back on track. And so, yeah, the gospel according to Johnny Cash is a story of redemption, um, uh, how light comes to us in our very dark moments. Yeah. It's interesting too. So often in American religious life right now that Christian religion is, is perceived primarily as a transformation project, right? Primarily that you walk the line and then you'll reap, you'll, you'll reap what you sow as opposed to, and there's like, there's right wing forms of it. There's left wing forms of it, right? I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's different content, but same form, right? You know, do this and you'll be blessed as opposed to sort of the transformation in, you know, in Cash's life, it's a byproduct almost of 
the realization that God, of God's faithfulness to him. You know, it's not the the real deep healing doesn't come from him actually trying to walk in line, but seeing God walk in line for, with, and in him. Yeah, I, I mean, I, maybe it's because we're Americans. We're always looking for like a return on investment, and we think of faith and God that way. So we're going to put in some time with, with this faith, and then we're going to reap some benefits on the back end of it. Um, but Cash's story, and like a lot of our stories, is that um, that it's only when we kind of receive that grace on the front end that we're able to kind of find our humanity and move forward, out, uh, working out of that sense of forgiveness. Um, and we kind of get out of the performance project uh, with with God. And can kind of just sit in our brokenness and receive, see that grace. That's, that's hard for a lot of us to do. I think we want to, I think there's just something in us that feels like we need to deserve everything we get. And so we gotta, we gotta get on the performance treadmill and uh, work for it, earn it, uh, deserve it. And yeah, there's progressive and conservative ways of performing well for others, right? There's, um, being a social justice warrior and performing your social justice activism perfectly. Um, and that can be exhausting for a lot of people. But in the same way, a lot of people have been burned out on kind of conservative evangelical Christianity on the, on their vision of what a good person looks like and that chews them up just as well. So yeah, I think we're all looking for grace. You have this great line from Bono where it, it this is so profound. He says, Johnny Cash doesn't sing to the damned. He sings with the damned. And sometimes you feel he might prefer their company, right? Like so, so much in life comes down to prepositions, right? Like he doesn't sing to them. He sings with them. I mean, I mean that's, that's a beautiful observation by Bono that seems to ca- be consistent. It consistently characterizes Johnny Cash from different points from youth, from a young Cash to a, before he dies, right? Yeah, that's that's the big part of the book is that theme of solidarity, being with, not not doing for or preaching to or preaching at, but but being with. And and again, the live concert at Folsom Prison is a great example of that. He just doesn't march in a parade. He goes into a prison and he's with those inmates. And that wasn't just a one-off, right? That was accumulation of like 10 years of doing prison concerts. So he is showing up, crossing those boundaries, standing with them, concert after concert. He's performing on makeshift stages in unair-conditioned prisons uh, for no compensation. And and to me, that kind of solidarity, that that being with – the people on the margins, the people that have been discarded by society is to me not just a great witness to his person, but I think what he was trying to do a lot with his art. And I really think that's what the gospel ultimately is all about. It is a moving to the edges. And that's kind of what I experienced out of the prison. I think that's what captivated me about Cash's music because uh, you would think that in prison ministry, the the movement would be me as an agent of the gospel going into a dark place to bring light into a dark place. But what you find, what you discover when you stand on the margins of society is that God's already at work and that I am being evangelized in those locations more than I am doing the evangelizing, that that I am being saved by the damned in a way that Johnny Cash was saved by the damned. Because like you had mentioned earlier, when Cash stood on the stage at Folsom Prison – his career and his personal life was at a crossroads. Everything was very, very fragile. His, his, uh, there was concern from the record company that, that, that he was on the way out, uh, that, that his popularity was waning and that this concert was just going to make things worse. And his sobriety was just very tenuous. In fact, I think he actually popped a few pills at that concert, at the Folsom concert. So, so his personal life, his sobriety, his romantic life in his entire career hung, hangs in the balance. And yet those prisoners receive him with such enthusiasm that that makes those, I makes those albums work. And so the argument I make is that cash was saved by Folsom prison more than anything else. Why is it that it's so often it seems that, that really religious people, right. Can look at, Johnny Cash retrospectively, right? And see a redemption story. See, but, but 
had they seen him pop pills before the 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 prison concert, they probably wouldn't have been able to see it as a story in progress, a story in a journey that's you know once. A, yeah, it's a, I mean, why is it that it seems like we can only appreciate redemption retrospectively like that? You know, I mean, it's almost like I was just sanitizing. Well, okay, because we see the end, and he's at church, and does it. You know, the okay, you know, we there was ups and downs, but now you know, in the end, it was a. You know, we tell ourselves it was more ups and downs. We count them all out, and then we can accept it. But you know, it it seems like we have a much more difficult time seeing people as a mixed bag and say, "Well, of course, the mixed bag is evidence that there's something spiritual going on." Not, not a, a counterfactual about. It. I think it goes back to your what you were taught earlier about performance. We we we. we if, if religion is fundamentally about performance, so we want to see the completed work. We want to see that people have gone through that journey. And, and in my churches, I struggle with that a little bit too, because it seems like we like we liked the good testimony. We like somebody to get up in front of us and they like to tell us this horrible story of addiction or criminality or incarceration. And then, um, and then they journey to the light and that's the story we want to hear. So we don't like these incomplete stories. We want to hear the victorious end where we get to the hallelujah and amen at the very end of it. And, and I love those stories and those testimonies, but sometimes I worry about them because uh, it seems like we're always wanting the happy ending. And sometimes stories don't end well. And a lot of our stories are in progress and a lot of our stories are incomplete or just a mixed bag. So I think you're right about that. Um, as to why we don't like that, uh, some, maybe it's, maybe it's we're into religion more for propaganda. Like, we, we, <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe we, we want, we need, we need that, we need happily ever after ending so that we can kind of market this product to people. Um, you can get, you know, you can get this good ending too. So I worry a little bit about that because, um, again, a lot of our, my friends that I know at my church. So I, 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 I'm at this little tiny mission church. So a lot of our friends that are homeless and they've come out of prison or on parole or dealing with homelessness and poverty. And, and sometimes I think we rush them up to that testimonial moment, but I know their lives continue. You know, three years after that testimony, they're back into rehab, um, or they're still struggling. So I do think we need something that speaks more to the faithfulness through the highs and the lows, not just the kind of big happy ending or whatever. Um, you know, but Cash, I think is, is a good example of that too, because during his career, when he was struggling, he was rejected by a lot of these audiences. Uh, here in Texas, I know there's a guy here in town that was a part of this. I think it was University of Texas that he was invited to do a concert, but he had got busted down in El Paso for drug possession. And so the school canceled his concert because, you know, he had been caught with the drugs and arrested. And another lady just this weekend was telling me that she was told by her family at one point not to listen to Johnny Cash music because he had been divorced. And so you don't want to listen to the music of somebody who'd been divorced. And so I, I do think he'd experienced some rejection during those hard parts of his I life. Bet you, I bet you those, some of those same people said, it's okay to be president, though, if you're divorced a few times. <laughs> I, I those bet, were, those yeah. were perfect divorces. They were the perfect divorces. <laughs> they were perfect. Yes. Just like these phone calls. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the other the thing that, that – I, the other thing, one of the things jumped out at me in the book, you know, that the, this idea that early on with his original band, where they're, they're they wear black to this like church concert because none of them have suits since the only shirt they all have, and they kind of dramatize this walking line, right? It's the only shirt everyone owns. Like, uh, and then you know, it's interesting because you talk about like black, it looks like the outlaw, but it also can look like the priest. You know, it can, it, it, and so much of Cash's art and his life these are these sort of double entendres or maybe just the symbols close to the line you know one day he feels more like the preacher the priest more one day more like the outlaw and and so it's that the the, the his own like haberdashery is so interesting in, in in symbolizing how how rich and messy the symbols can be yeah i mean most people when they hear johnny cash called the man in black think of him think of that as an outlaw image and he was a big part of that, that whole kind of outlaw movement that, uh, you know, Will, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson and all of them kind of carried on. But 
he also used that as an image of church going. Like in the very early days, he said, hey, black is what you wear to church. And so he, so the saint sinner motif runs all through his career. And so at one, at one point, there's that famous picture that you might have seen. It's like a, on dorm room posters and outlaw posters all the time with him giving the bird to the flipping the finger. I used to have the poster on my wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's what you think of Johnny Cash is kind of the general, general badass, kind of the rebel. Uh, and then he, he, he would portray himself as kind of the Christian family man and he would sing songs like Amazing Grace and, uh, in his concerts. And so he would play with those juxtapositions and those can be kind of confusing sometimes. And I think some people kind of pick and choose which Johnny Cash they like. Do they like the kind of gospel Johnny Cash? Do they like the outlaw Johnny Cash? And, but what I enjoy about him is that that's what makes him fascinating as an artist because I think he's this interesting mixture of light and dark. And it's, I think we all identify with that. When we look at ourselves, we're like, I, I don't, I'm not cleanly saint or sinner. I'm a weird mixture of beautiful altruistic impulses, but selfishness and meanness and pettiness as well. And our stories are mixtures of light and dark. It's kind of what I experienced out of the prison. So here, are, Guys in maximum security prison, and they've done some horrible things, and yet they also have these beautiful things about who they are and um, the way they treat me. And so that's kind of what I explore in the book is the is grace isn't always found amongst the sober and the cleaned up. It's it's found in all of these locations and often in really unlikely people and places. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsmith, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You also write about this, you know, there, there's this, there's strands in Cash's music where he really, his witness, his solidarity extends to people who are on the margins of, of capitalism, to Native Americans and their play. And it's just interesting because on the other hand, you think of this guy who's this, you know, uh, you know, you, you, he's this patriot. He loves America and many people who are sort of, Probably in a kind of love it or leave it motif, like kind of connect with cash, right? And some of the, but and yet he's also sympathetic to these people who have been marginalized by the American story and who live on, you know, what's uh, it? What is this one guy, Shane Claiborne, born calls the the burned out places of empire, right? Like these six places. It's, it's it's just interesting how how seldom you see in public life someone that has all these sort of mixed influences and and, and streams run together and it's so it's hard to sort of pinpoint because it's the witness seems to transcend the kind of uh, you know simpler categories you know the tribal categories where we live today where well if you you can't be with you can have a little witness but not with these and these people at the same time you got you know it's more about you know your tribe and your team yeah that was one of the more difficult parts of of writing the book is that i didn't want to write the book as a complete just uncritical praise of everything that Johnny Cash ever did. 
and and to me, given my political leanings, I was particularly concerned about all the patriotic music Cash had recorded in his life. I mean, he he recorded a lot of music about America, whole concept albums just devoted to America, and a lot of that is very nostalgic. But in the era of Trump, nostalgia can be kind of um, an influence the right that make America great again. Um, nostalgia can because be nostalgia is often uh, is often fantasy, <coughs> right? I mean, often for any of us, sometimes when life is not what we'd like, we kind of tell ourselves a, 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 a nostalgic story that that's often fictional, and you know, and, and that kind of helps us cope with or, or or can maybe make us deal in 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 toxic ways with what the present is. Oh yeah, and 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 so to me that was the concern is how uh, uh again, I'm not wholly critical about looking back at American history with pride. I'm I'm pointing to how kind of nostalgia can get leveraged into kind of a politics of resentment. Like America used to be great, it's no longer great. So who are the culprits that are we going to identify that are that are ruining this this country? Why are so and and, and so the question is, how do you leverage kind of national pride, which Johnny Cash clearly had? He he served in the Air Force. He was a very proud American. How do you leverage that pride, but also with honesty and also paying attention to the locations where, pe- the, where people have been left behind by the American dream? So the argument I make in the book is that you got to filter Cash's patriotism for the way he used his music to pay attention to – uh, Depression era farmers, the way he sang about the Native American spe- experience in an album called Bitter Tears, which is a harsh critique of American empire. Um, I think it's one of the most Christian albums he ever recorded. It's basically just an album of protest songs. Um, the way he would spend time talking about prison reform in America and st- going before the Senate and saying, hey, the way we treat the incarcerated isn't fair. And, and and so I think you got to hold all of that together. There's national pride and guilt. We have to have a, a critical patriotism. And I think if you look at all of his art, you get that criticism. But I think you're right. We're losing that capacity for criticism because nowadays it's like if you criticize, that's unpatriotic. They, they are now ant- antithetical concepts where I think Cash was able to hold them together. Maybe not perfectly, um, but the fact that he was at least trying to be critical – and speak a negative word about kind of the situations in America that he found. I think he's an example for us, and the one that we really need right now, I think. Yeah, you know, recently, a, a couple months ago, I had a guy, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, on the podcast who works with uh, Reverend Barber and the National Poor People's Campaign. And he was talking about how so much of his work is trying to help, uh, you know, connect poor and working class whites, you know, and, and show them th- th- where some of the sort of way they're played against uh, people of color, other other poor working class folks, and how this is sort of, you know, I mean, this is part of the way that uh, that there's kind of a, you know, that, that you have all this, you know, income inequality and the and how power is leveraged that, that often you, you keep people from identifying across those interests, right? And and John, and cash is is seemingly at points able to do this is is able to see, uh, you know, it doesn't have to play the group. One suffering group's interest off the others, but again, some of this seems like the witness. You know, it it, it, it sort of it enables him to inhabit a, a patriotic spirit, but also a critical spirit at the same time. Which which is really again, you're right. It's it's a moving thing because it's just something you don't see very often. Yeah, my favorite song about this is the, the actually the song "The Man in Black." And so in the early '70s, he was at Vanderbilt University, and this is the time of race riots. This is a time of Vietnam, um, again, inequality. He, he's looking at – well, I mean it's it's not unlike our our time today. And the the young people were pushing him and they were basically saying like, what do you stand for, you know, Mr. Cash? Like where, where – as, as the world's burning, where do you stand? And he wrote this song called The Man in Black and, and it's basically a song of solidarity. And so lyric after lyric, like my favorite lyric is like, I, I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. And so black becomes for him a sign of grief and lament in solidarity with the people on the edge is of society. And you're right. Um, when you get out there in the, the trailer parks of America or the inner cities, 
yeah, racially diverse peoples, rural whites and inner city blacks, but all suffering and hungry. And we wear the black for all of those constituencies. One of the things you know, you you, you say that, that Cash realized one of the reasons that prison songs, that genre was so popular, even though most people that listen to it have not been incarcerated, is that everybody feels like they're in prison in some kind of a prison or another, right? And and for so many people, it, it goes back to pain and childhood when you're the least capable and equipped to deal with it. And for him, there was tremendous childhood trauma with the loss of his br- brother and the way his dad sort of, you know, it took that, you know, it really blamed, you know, there was a lot of transference. To, 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 yeah. There was a lot of family dynamics that seemed incredibly painful. And I mean, I, I wonder, you know, as, as somebody who teaches psychology to undergrads, I mean, is that, do you find that rings true that, that, that people are, that so much of human pathology is one form or, or human brokenness is just one form of prison or another? Oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, I, I think a lot of us live our lives feeling that there are walls between us and other people. I mean, even in our intimate relationships in our marriages, we people feel alone. I think, and I think it's getting worse. I think people are feeling increasingly lonely and isolated. And some of it's because there are pains and traumas of the, of our childhood that um, haven't been healed. But some of it is just the way we feel dislocated from each other in modern society. So like in the, in the song at, uh, Folsom Prison Blues, the incarcerated singer is listening to this train passing by. And on the train, he just imagines kind of happy people off to happy destinations and he's left behind. And I don't drinking know. Fancy, uh, the drinking fancy coffee and smoking big cigars. Yeah, smoking yeah. big cigars. And I don't know if there's a better image for social media than that. That as people scroll through, scroll through social media, they see happy people off to happy destinations. They see ha- the happy families on their beach vacation and all the successes of their friends and family. And, and so we, we see that and we just feel our lives are diminished by contrast. And so, uh, I think, inc- yeah, I think a lot of us live with a sense that a lot of my, private pains and struggles and sacrifices and heroisms, just nobody knows about them. And so we feel cut off from life. Yeah. It's so interesting that you talk about social media because, you know, I know some scholars of, of Western intellectual history look at sort of Augustine and the confessions. It's this sort of like, you know, watershed moment where the inner self gets such a reification, right? And this really becomes a big thing in, in, in Western history. And now, like, we can't get through a day without thinking like that. Well, here's my inner self, and then they suffer. But now it's like we've got a third self. There's the inner self, the outer self, and the avatar self, right? The curated self out there in social media. And so, like, you got all the pressure to kind of create this third self, right? And then it looks so shitty compared to everybody else's. Or, or, or you're trying to make somebody else feel shitty about their – so you feel better about your created, created avatar. I mean, that does feel like a prison, I think, for many people. Yeah, or just or like a fun house, like a like a like a you know, you're lost in a maze of fun house mirrors yeah. and you can't even identify yourself. So you definitely feel lost in there. Um and, and I think that's something about there's something going on with modern society that we're increasingly neurotic for just those reasons, that we cannot uh locate our our true self. Uh the self is comes to us in fragments or pieces. And very little of it seems stable or trustworthy. Um, and maybe that's just because in the modern world we've been cut off from. I don't want to, again, wax nostalgic, but it does seem like the things that used to give stability or at least some sort of identity t- to our ancestors was they they kind of had a shared narrative, a shared worldview that kind of located themselves in a more kind of sturdy, durable way. Now, obviously, that that, that – that story that they lived in could be oppressive. You know, it was a restriction of freedom. So now we have all this freedom to kind of narrate our lives however we want. But that means there is no single narrative, and I can ditch it as ditch the story of my life and you know start writing a new one. And there's incredible freedom there, but there's also a sense of that it's all kind of self fabricated, and that feels very fragile and breakable, especially when life kind of hits us sideways, like. 
when the story I've written for myself, what makes my life important or significant is lost because of illness or because of a divorce or unemployment. You know, when, when, when our dreams aren't realized, then we are end up picking up the pieces of our lives wondering like, well, who am I now if, if this is all I have? And so there's a great freedom, but we also have kind of the paradox of choice. You can be anything you want. When I look our, we look at our college students and say, you can do anything you want in your life. And they are really, really anxious people as well because of that. You know, um, they're, they're burdened by that freedom as well. Um, so it's opportunity, but there's also a lot of anxiety underneath us all. Yes, finitude is a, is a burden, right? Especially when it's sort of, you know, you, you can do anything, but not everything. But even the anything you can do is probably really not anything. I mean, there were certain limits, but they, but you know, the finitude is sort of. Uh, I mean, we 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 almost do everything we can. It seems to paper over the finitude, right? And to say that, like, hey, you know, you're just an open canvas. You know, you're the world's. And, and we're. I mean, finitude is hard. Yeah, and and if you're not even papering it over, you're just distracting yourself from it. You know, so I we we kind of live we kind of live live as if we are immortal, like we have all the time in the world. So we will waste enormous amounts of time watching Netflix or. My students will play video games or wh- whatever it is. Um, and, you know, it just that's a whole weekend wasted. And, and the assumption being that, you know, because I have an infinity of weekends in front of me. And so we deny our finitude. And there's a passage in Scripture that I really love, and it says, teach us to number our days that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Right? You only have so many days, so number them. You only have so many marbles in the jar. And so every weekend that you waste is one that cannot be got back. Like you don't have an infinity of weekends. You have the time now. So give it a depth, give it a meaning, give it a purpose um, that that our current capitalistic, consumeristic culture is trying to distract you from um, to keep you kind of superficially entertained. Uh, Yeah, so I think there's lots of ways we try to cope or avoid or deny our finitude because of how kind of anxious that makes us. But now we're getting into existentialism, you know, which is is all right. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. One of the last chapters of your book is called When the Man Comes Around. And this is one of my favorite Johnny Cash songs. And one of the things that's so interesting about it is that he sings so beautifully. You talk about how there's there's judgment and love, you know, in the appearance of Christ. Like it's... You know, and sometimes the judgment and the love are hard to hard to pull apart. You know, depending on how they how it hits us. You know, like uh, just like how a, a lover's gaze can be so great it, it, when uh, we need it, and yet if we feel like we have something ashamed that we're ashamed to tell them, that same gaze can undo us. That you know, it's the same lover's gaze. But but you know, he does it. He, he sings so well about something that the church seems so inept, inept about talking about today, which is eschatology in the, the sense that the world has an end, uh, a purpose, a meaning, there's an ultimacy. And like, I, it's just people often, the church either ignores it or, or trivializes it. I mean, with all these charts and this, and the, the, you know, the, you know, the book of revelation, here you go. And the, the, the beast, well, the core, of course, this is, you know, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein or Caitlyn Jenner or whoever, you know, I, it's just like whoever, you know, it seems that Cash is able to take something serious and sing about it with a kind of simple elegance. The, the church seems to do nothing but stumble over when it talks about it. Yeah, you almost wonder if you can, you can almost only talk about eschatology now nowadays artistically in that way. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating because I know a lot of my friends who are very progressive people and the whole eschatological aspect of – of Christianity, the heaven and hell and judgment day is, is nothing they would kind of sign on to. Um, I mean, maybe, but you know, they're, they're, they're focused on this life right now. And yet they love the man comes around, which is a, if you look at the lyrics, right? When the man comes around taking names, he decides who to free and who to blame. And everyone won't be treated all the same when the man comes around. Now, if you just look at those lyrics, that's like old school, you know, doomsday apocalyptic kind of stuff. And then there's also a great video he about uh released it was a song released after he died and a gospel song um uh God's going to cut you down. Do you know that song? And I don't think I do know that one. 
Yeah, but if you go online and you watch the video, it's all these Hollywood types singing, God's going to cut you down. So here are all these progressive Hollywood California types singing this song about the judgment of God is ultimately going to cut you down. And, and, and I just, the irony of Hollywood actors singing this Old Testament vision of God's judgment is, is really, it gives me some whiplash watching it. And, but, but I do think we believe deep in our kind of cultural DNA or maybe in some sort of like unconscious way that, 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 that there is going to be a reckoning that, that we're going to be weighed. Our lives are going to be judged in some way. I mean, even if you're not a religious person, I think a lot of us kind of have a sense that everything that we do is at some point going to be put in the balance and evaluated. And in one way, that's terrifying. But in another way, I think that's the only human way to live, right? Because it gives weight to the, all the choices that we make today, the, the large and the small. And a lot of us choose the good when it hurts, when it's sacrificial and when nobody's watching because we think it has some sort of eternal significance, right? There is a weight to even the smallest ethical decision. So if you extend an act of kindness to somebody – you might say, well, in the scheme of things, with Washington, a complete dumpster fire, the world spinning out of control, like what difference does it make if I cut a corner? You know, what difference does it make if I show an act of kindness to somebody today? And I think a lot of us, we need something to kind of say, you know what? It all matters. It all has eternal significance. And so I think that's why in an age of kind of like almost – ethical relativism, a song like The Man Comes Around or God's Going to Cut You Down, this kind of sense that all our ethical actions make a difference and that, and that the good is sorted from the bad. I think, I think it's, it, it allows us to have a, a moral backdrop to our lives upon which we can enact kind of a moral heroism. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting though because I feel like there's almost tension between the the way the lyrics and the man comes around and the and the score the the composition because it, it's almost mischievous and like and I think of like Robert Farrar Capon's books on the parables of Jesus and how he sees Jesus like being able to talk about these ultimate sort of themes of the last days and almost also tell tell them. With tongue-in-cheek images and 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 that I mean that's one of the things I appreciate about that song because it's it's able to hold the sort of uh gra- like gravity uh with a sort of tragic slash comic lightness that's it, again it, it's all these things in cash that seem to be able to uh, where the power is in this in these creative tensions right where 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 it's not resolved necessarily one way or the other and that and that seems so so much of the power of his art is there. No, I agree because again, that the, the reason why a lot of us um, have avoided that language of judgment is because when it becomes like you said, it loses its dialectic, it loses its art playfulness. There, if we could say that, that it does settle into kind of a doom and gloom, a very harsh judgment, um, and so that's kind of why I play with that idea in the book. Is like, yeah, the the man comes around, um, and we think we might know. Who's the saint? And who's the sinner? But if you look at his career, here's a guy that was standing on a stage at Folsom Prison singing for murderers. So again, it, it it keeps the situation fluid. It doesn't settle into. I think I think when we see the language of judgment go toxic is when you come to a settled state of like these are the saved and these are the damned, and we know who those people are. The minute you kind of settle into that certainty, I think that language gets runs off the rails real quickly. But when it becomes a language of movement and playfulness and, and it's unclear to me whether or not I'm on, I'm saved or I'm lost. Is it the murderer who's the saved and me who's the Christian that's lost? You know, that surprises me. And so the language of judgment can keep, if it stays fluid, like you're talking about, um, I think it does good work for us because it keeps us restless. But when it settles, it, it kind of curdles in a lot of that toxic fundamentalism that a lot of us want to step away from. Yeah, Al, uh, Aldous Huxley said that the world needs more theological psychologists or or, or, psych, or psychological theologians. Or I, I wonder because you you 
are a psychologist who spend so much of your time writing in the realm of theology and, and talking about themes of religious faith. Like, do, how do you sort that out? Like, are you sort of theological psychologist, psychological, the- like, how do you, do you, how do you, how do all these streams run together as you figure out your own story? Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think I spent a lot of time thinking about how religious beliefs affect psychology and how psychology affects religious beliefs. And so obviously what you believe affects the way you, affects your your feelings towards yourselves in the world. And kind of we were talking about that. Like like in many ways I think we need to have a sense that my my actions have eternal significance. So we need that on one hand, but we also don't want to settle into the sense of like if I make a mistake then I'm damned because that leads to some pretty toxic psychological outcomes. Where I think a lot of theologians just kind of want to talk about like what's metaphysically true, you know, or evangelical theologians were like, what's biblically true? And so it becomes just this abstract conversation about what's true, where my interests as a psychologist are like, what is the impact of these beliefs upon people's lives? Like, how, like does, it, does it cause them to flourish? Does it help them lead? Does it draw them to the good, the, the good, the true, and the beautiful? Um, and I like just tracing that thread out uh, back and forth um, because I think there's not a lot of – time spent on how theology and belief affects our psyches we don't talk a lot about about that like what this particular belief in god does to my emotional life and i just find that a fascinating intersection to explore so i i was trained yeah in two uh I, i went to two presbyterian kind of mainline institutions for theological education and I learned that there, my, my, my sense was like, as a Presbyterian, you should follow three JCs, Jesus Christ, John Calvin, and Johnny Cash, but not necessarily in that order. Uh, so this is, <laughs> you've written on one of my three fra- favorite JCs, and I'll tell you, it's a great book. Uh, and thanks for writing it, and thanks for spending some time talking to you about it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Richard for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, the Gospel According to Johnny Cash. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.